Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Dr. Lewis, who is a got his uh, PhD in chemistry from a very prestigious uh, University, MIT, and he's done a lot of work on diagnostic testing, and we're going to dive deep today into how some of the testing can be utilized to uh, stratify the, your risk factors for developing COVID. He's done some really intriguing work with this and published a nice paper on it. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. We're delighted to be part of this solution. Yeah, we first met almost two years ago now at the... Uh, Academy for Comprehensive Integrative Medicine in Orlando, and uh, you had get, we both presented there, and you were gave a presentation, I believe, on using the examination of the retina, another diagnostic tool to predict, uh, give an accurate assessment as to what your risk for for other diseases other than uh, retinal diseases. So your work is extended from that time. So I'm glad we got a chance to connect today. Yeah, you know, the, the eye is a very interesting platform. You know, when you look at um, disease, we all lie, you know, the, the, the allopathic system, you know, you're either healthy or you're sick, but we really lie on continuums of health, you know, an overall continuum. And then I say we live on four different continuums, you know, determinants of health, lifestyle risks, things like that. Physiological health, we measure in blood, stool, urine, things like that. Pathology, which is largely ignored, but we do do ultrasounds, MRIs, uh, CT scans, things like that, that assess tissue changes. The eye happens to be particularly good at that because the eye is transparent and the methodology used to measure the eye is low cost, non-invasive, but highly precise and accurate. So for example, OCT, optical coherence tomography, is much more precise at looking at microvessels, capillaries, compared to MRI, because the wavelength of light they use to um, create the interference is a much shorter wavelength. So, in, that, in other words, it gives much more detail than an MRI. Uh, I'm I'm not familiar with the OCT. What what type is that an X-ray? O OCT is a um, tomography using um, using light waves. So, just like MRI is using big long waves. So no, like no, ionizing, no ionizing radiation. No, no ionizing. Wow. It's safe as can be. It's safe as it's safe as can be, and the they're not that expensive. I at some point had like doctors saying they'll do a cash OCT for thirty-five to fifty dollars, and what it wow. tells you, you know, and the and you know, if you look at the literature, uh, glaucoma is Alzheimer's disease of the eye, and Alzheimer's is glaucoma of the brain. So very often. We will see, like in my own dad's case, I wrote the first book, The End of Alzheimer's. My dad had glaucoma first, and then several years later, he developed Alzheimer's disease, and that's how I got into the well, that's business. Well, we've only, we don't have hours today to go into that, but I, I think we need to have you back just to, go in, just to discuss that in more detail, because it is fascinating. I didn't realize that it was a light imaging uh, diagnostic tool that you had, so it's, I, I'm really intrigued. But... Why don't you, before we go and dive deep into the diagnostic strategies you have for COVID, uh, why don't you tell us your journey and learning and what led you to developing this strategy? Right. So my journey in health, I started out as a PhD chemist from MIT. And what you, know, what you learn there is scientific method in a, in a big way. Then I went to the Harvard School of Public Health. But the most important thing when uh, 17 years ago, my dad died of Alzheimer's disease, I was at the MIT Enterprise Forum and I met a very unusual doctor, a very unusual, an ophthalmologist at Harvard, 40 year career there. But in 1980, he stopped using 
traditional ophthalmol ophthalmological practices and use the eye as a biomarker for systemic disease because he just couldn't you know, deny the fact that his patients with ocular conditions had systemic problems too. And uh, Scapin's, the father of modern retinal surgery, was sending all the complex patients to him. So I studied under him and uh, Dr. McCulley, the pioneer of the homocysteine theory of cardiovascular disease. He's 85 and still prolific, prolifically publishing today. And McCulley from Mechanisms and Dr. Trump from actually being able to see the disease because your eye is transparent. So you can see the microvessels, which MRI and other techniques can't see. And you can see the vascular tissue with that OCT technique. You can really see in great detail. I, I meant neurological tissue called the retinal nerve fiber layer, which extends all the way back to the optic chasm. So what's going on in the eye is very much profoundly going on in the rest of the body. And the reason is the eye vasculature, the carotid, is the most vascular tissue in the entire body. Whereas the brain uses like 10 times more oxygen than most tissue on a per mass basis, the retina constantly converting photons to electrons uses even more uh, oxygen on a, on a per mass basis. So if you're vulnerable, the eye is potentially a canary for that vulnerability. Yeah, and actually the retina is part of the brain. It's an outcropping of the brain, no question. So Dr. McCullough, just before I gave that talk at uh, ACIM, an article came out in the New York Times about how young, young, young Ebola sufferers were expressing with nuclear cataracts, the most common cataract form and the most common surgery in the world. And the doctors were, quote, surprised to see five-year-olds with cataract. But wow. really, this cataract, this unfolded protein response is actually part of the innate immune system. And in these children with Ebola, and then they 20 year olds, 30 year olds, there's a whole um, soliloquy on that. But that is a manifestation of your innate immune response against acute infection. But if you're 50 years old and you have early nuclear cataract, it's not a good sign because what you have in that case is chronic smoldering infection that's causing this unfolded protein response to slowly matriculate. And if you look at the ARID study, the age-related eye disease study, National Institute of Health, 12 centers, 55,000 uh, people, and then the 16 subsequent studies around the globe, if you have an early cataract, that's a bad sign for uh, longevity. And most people with cataract die of some vascular event. Yeah, that, 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 that is fascinating. I got a quick question on it because I wasn't aware that cataracts were related to this development of an increase in the unfolded proteins. So would it, would, what, what's your understanding? Is it because of the increase in the production of unfolded proteins or a decrease in the ability to resolve or to fold them back together, which is typically uh, yeah. ac accelerated and improved with interventions like autophagy or is it both? Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's interesting that, um, to answer your question, not in the box you gave me, but go outside of it a little bit, is Robert Moyer at Harvard, um, partnered with Rudy Tanzi, you know, one of the top neurologists in the world, showed in a 2009-2010 paper that in the Alzheimer's plaques in the brain, that, that when they test these in the laboratory, these, these so-called plaques, which we put a negative connotation to, are actually part of the innate immune response. And in fact, they are similar or part of a class of proteins called antimicrobial peptides. So when this is happening in the uh, um, anterior chamber, the forward chamber where the cataract is, there's a very good chance that you have expression of a focal infection that uh, Charles Mayo and Frank Billings talked about over a hundred years ago. They were talking about dental uh, focal infection, but We've seen periodontal P. gingivalis and other things detectable in the back of the eye. You know, someone has a toxoscar. That's a, 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 a intracellular parasite that gets into the, into the um, ocular fluid and can manifest disease. So um, it's a very strong, that's why we use this test. It's so simple to see where, you know, to see if they're, life risks are translating into physiological risk and then change, changing into pathological risk. And when you're changing sure. into pathological risk, you know, 
a bad ending is getting closer because you have tissue damage, basically. Yeah, I think we should have another interview about that because it's really intriguing. But oh, how, did you, how, did, how did you morph from working in that area to uh, focus your energies on, on this COVID-19 diagnostics? Uh, be, because, I'm sure it was because it was obviously pervasive and the focus of almost everyone's attentions. But I mean, what, what, what catalyzed you to, to do, go deeper on this? Well, that, that, that's a superb question. And, you know, my training with McCulley, homocysteine, and Dr. Trump, when he was analyzing people with neurodegeneration, glaucoma, macular disease, he wasn't just looking at the eye. He really took on, in 1980, 1990, a functional approach. So he asked lifestyle questions. He put people on, you know, omega-3s, but he also did very extensive blood tests, very extensive blood tests. So not just lipids and A1C, he's looking at ferritin, he's looking at uric acid, C-reactive protein, fibrinogen, D-dimer, sed rate, all these things that are really important. Then when COVID struck, the Chinese reported elevated ferritin, mm -hmm. elevated sed rate. And I'm looking at what the Chinese are reporting for COVID-19 and I'm looking at the lab panels that Dr. Trump taught me and we've been doing for 15 years and they matched up. And I'd love to send you this article. You can, anybody can Google it. Mass General, so Harvard Medical School Teaching Hospital, COVID-19 Treatment Protocol. Mm -hmm. And they have right in that protocol on page two or three, how they risk stratify inpatients, in hospital rather, COVID-19 sufferers, the ones that are really in severe, you know, in uh, severe cases, they're triaging and they're doing sed rate, they're doing ferritin. They're not doing uric acid, which is often a sign of hypoxia. I think they should, but they're doing the CRP, they're doing the fasting insulin. But what's really interesting is that they're doing viral serologies and they're doing bacterial testing. So what Harvard recognizes that they're not sharing with the rest of the world is that it's not about treating COVID-19, it's about measuring how full your vessel is towards these markers that create the cytokine storm, high inflammation and kill you and mm -hmm. trying to modulate that. And some of the things that do that, why does a ZPAC treat COVID-19? It doesn't, it treats bacterial infection, but we all have a subclinical uh, bacterial infectious burden. And that burden is taking up immune system bandwidth, which makes you less able to fight something as virulent as COVID-19. That's why ZPAC works. That's why they're doing HSV and Epstein-Barr and other viruses. And I have a very simple thing. I, I work with people that sometimes don't even have a high school education. I say, look, and I treat them, I teach them about infection. When you die, you're no longer interacting with the environment, yet you have to be pickled. You're rotting from within. They're already there. That's why your white blood cells are never zero. They're constantly, you know, 4,000, 5,000, 8,000, whatever. Constantly, it's constantly trying to stay in battle. So where you are on this continuum of risk that Harvard talks about for in-hospital people is what I believe every human being should have tested so they can find out what their risk, because once again, we lie on a COVID-19 continuum. And there's nothing really special about COVID and our immune response because our immune response is innate and adaptive. And it's just being able to more accurately measure your immune compromised status. And almost everything we measure is um, reversible through very simple processes, supplementation, lifestyle activities, sure. treating the infection, treating the, the uh, pre-existing virus. So, but what I'm trying to bring is a little more, as a scientist, I'm bringing, trying to bring a little more objectivity to you feel better, but does your physiological health that we measure very accurately track along with how you feel? Yeah, that's, that's great. I think we really desperately need these objective barometers to assess exactly where we're at. And I wanna ask you a few things, uh, specifically how Harvard is using this test. But before we go there, one of the reasons we're doing it, of course, is for COVID-19. And in COVID-19, you hear frequently the term cytokine storm. Correct. And it's my impression that most people have no clue what the hell a cytokine is. Well just want to define it now for people, that cytokine is merely a very short-lived protein that has 
regulatory properties on nearby cells. So it could be beneficial or it could be detrimental. So it could be a pro-inflammatory, which could be useful to fight infections, or it could be anti-inflammatory to prevent these, these overwhelming assaults. So it's not so much that cytokines are bad or evil. They're absolutely necessary and you'd be dead without them. But when it gets over, out of control, it can kill you. So that, you know, that's the cytokine storm. But what, so I, I wanted to get that out of the way so people know right. what we're seeking to address. But the, what is Harvard using this test for now? Are they using it as a screening tool or are they, and or are they using it in the hospital setting to stratify and make the decision as to which patients are going to be transferred to the ICU or perhaps go on ventilators? Yeah, that, that's exactly it, Joe. My, my daughter runs, uh, well, she's a, a brand new nurse in a trauma unit at a local hospital. Mm -hmm. And every trauma unit, especially when you get a flood of people, you've got to risk stratify people. Some are just complainers, some you can help, and some are too far gone. And so like if your hospital is flooded, you've got to figure out who the heck is, is going to get treatment and then what treatment makes the most sense. So what Harvard's doing first is to triage. They determine who they can help quickly and who they can't help and who doesn't need help quickly. So they can allocate resources. And the second thing is in terms of figuring out how to treat, if someone has a bacterial burden, if someone has a viral burden, if someone's sed rate, you know, your blood is just you know, clotting, um, then you can determine, well, I, I'll use some clotting medications on this, or I'll use the Z-Pak because there's a, so, so they're using it for a multifactorial reason. And you know, it's no different, okay, they're in, they're in hospital and they're, they're in desperate straits, but for the average person, Knowing where you are on that continuum, I think, would be extraordinarily valuable. And that's, that's the testing that, you know, we're, we're doing and we're trying to promote more broadly. Because when you look at the, this year's vaccine, you know, it's, it's one of the publications I saw is 55, 58% effective against the most common strain of flu. And, you know, a Cleveland Clinic doctor died at, of the flu this year. You know, it's like, you know, that's not, a good, that's not a good thing. But when you compare people with good physiological health versus poor physiological health expressed by diabetes or cardiovascular disease or something, the factor, the difference is 95%, way more effective than a vaccine if you can simply improve your physiological health. And I explain it to my people a, a very simple way. I'm, I'm sipping on a protein smoothie right now, but imagine if this glass was cup was empty you have a lot of space to fill before you get sick say or if it's half full you have less resilience or less reserve and if it's spilling over or yeah. full you're the one who's going to be hospitalized for COVID-19 and we can measure where you are in that continuum extraordinarily accurately and let me just give you one other sidebar you know when you look at a, a marker like fibrinogen or D-dimer or sed rate or C-reactive protein, and you look at the reference intervals that Quest produces as normal and that LabCorp produces, then you go to labs online and find out what they mean. They really aren't, don't mean anything scientific. It's more of a liability issue. So what we've gone in, I'll just take sed rate as an example, and looked at where the change in sed rate or 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 uh, the, the level of sed rate shows a statistical increase in early mortality based on bona fide peer-reviewed studies. And that sets a completely different set of normal range for biomarkers, which is what we use. So we're not diagnosing people, we're sure. risk scoring people. Okay, that, thanks for that clarification. And just uh, one subtle recommendation is, and I'm a appreciate the fact that you're having a healthy breakfast, but you may want to switch that container to glass <laughs> instead of the plastic. When, the, when my, when my wife brings me in something, I just accept her. it, but <laughs> I know, I know. If, happy if, wife, happy life. <laughs> yeah, no, I get that. But just just like upgrade her knowledge base on. I understand the, you know, so, being a chemist. Yeah. Yeah. So you get the phthalates and the BPA, but anyway, the, I'd like to go into the detail specifics about some of the tests. And I, I did review your paper, but I don't recall seeing that vitamin D was one of the, the tests that, you, that were on there. 
You know, vitamin D is a test that we clearly do every day. Yeah. And you know, is it, is, it, um, is, it not, is it one that you found useful though in your predicting score? Very useful, very oh. useful. Now it just happens that, you know, in that paper, um, we were talking more about what Harvard was doing, but you know, yeah. vitamin D should be in that. So we yeah. have a 55 well, They're not using it, they're not using it. Right. Okay. No, we, we absolutely run vitamin D on everybody, okay, you know, great. and uh, if, if need be, we funnel people in and, and if they say they're taking 5,000 or 10,000 units and their vitamin D's in the tank, then we'll one, run the 125 dihydroxy, the activated form to see if they're activating it. And if they're activating it, they normally have an inflammatory underlying condition that's causing their liver to produce the Take, you know, vitamin 25 hydroxy uh, vitamin D is what I call the militia in the barracks, whereas the 125 dihydroxy is really the activated form. Activated yeah, form. a lot of times if that's low, I would definitely look at magnesium levels. Uh, and I'm not sure if you're measuring the serum or the RBC magnesium, but magnesium is a very important cofactor for that double hydroxylization, one in the liver and then the kidneys for to get to yeah i'm a disciple of carolyn dean and all her magnesium work oh sure yeah, yeah. so there i mean There's a lot no of people question. understand that you really need to have both i mean if you have a very healthy diet and your magnesium deplete already it's a it's a, it's a, uh, a mood issue but most people aren't so uh yeah. and interestingly with vitamin d it actually has a pretty profound effect on increasing the amps the antimicrobial peptides so that's another reason how it works. Because right, I, I, and then a, a lot of the infections that I look for, these in, uh, so-called obligate intracellular infections, mm -hmm. will travel through the body within a neutrophil, which is a type of white blood cell that normally fights the bacteria. So this is, you know, current research. And then Tom Barodi is the gentleman who was on the H. Pylori Nobel Prize team. He developed the triple antibiotics, but he runs the Digestive Health Center in Sydney. And he said very clearly, and then I did the research on it and found it, that you need vitamin D, which is, an, which is a hormone, to improve the activity of neutrophils. So the people that are having you know, joint pain and brain problems and arthritis, they probably have intracellular infection being transported through their neutrophils because their neutrophils are basically turned off because of a lack of vitamin D. Or if they're not turned off, they're just not as efficacious as they could be. That's how important hormone D is to um, our immune regulatory system. Yeah, it's a very powerful immune modulator. So that's one that you like. And why don't you list the primary ones? Because there's about a dozen or more that you test for, maybe two dozen or three, I don't know. But it's, it's quite, a, quite a number. And I'm sure there's probably only a handful that are really highly predictive. And why don't we run by those one by one and perhaps list them in your uh, impression of the most important first. Well, I'll tell you the most important marker that we do, and it costs almost nothing when you do a complete blood count with differential, it is the neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio. Interesting. Yeah, and because, and, and you know, Harvard now at Dana-Farber is using the NLR, neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio, in what they call pretreatment for cancer. So for example, that marker alone determines prognosis in almost all solid tumor cancers. And if you have an NLR of four, five, six, and they do chemo on you, Harvard knows you're probably gonna die, okay? okay? Because they're suppressing your immune system. Now let's investigate what NLR stands for. Neutrophils on the top, lymphocytes on the bottom, okay? Neutrophils go up with bacterial infection, you know, acute, but more importantly, for most of us out there with ill-defined conditions chronically, and then lymphocytes get suppressed with virus. So the neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio is sort of an amplified barometer for your stealth infectious burden. And it should, it should be 1.5 or below. And that's so- Okay, good to know. So is that ratio calculated with the absolute count? Is it absolute counts, yeah. Not the percent, the absolute counts. Okay, good. Yep. Yeah, wow. So that, that is surprising. I wouldn't have guessed that. So thank you. Yep. For and, and so like I have people from all over the world say, hey, I can't run your full panels. Should I bother hiring you? I say, look, if you have a CBC with differential, you'd be shocked at how much information I can gather. So the next one is uh, the red blood cell distribution width. And I've spent more time 
studying this and I have a book, sort of a, a book that covers this to some degree. And, you know, red blood cells are born small and die large. And over their four month life, their life and times going through capillaries tell a lot about what's, what your capillaries look like. And if your RDW is, is wide, you have plaques, inflamed, corroded arteries, if you will. Now, the problem with RDW is when you get above, say, 16, 17, that could be a sign of anemia. But from 12.5 to, say, 16, that's a pure, pure sign of inflammation. And that, too, comes with a CBC with differential, you know. And then your absolute neutrophil counts are very important. But, you know, C-reactive protein, inflammation in the endothelial, right in the vascular tissue. And you should be 0.6 or below, not three, not eight. You should be 0.6 yeah. or below. What, what levels are you seeing in most people? You know, it, it varies. You know, it is an acute phase reactant. So it has a half-life of seven days. So it can go up and then come down. But I mean, I've had several people in the last couple of weeks with uh, between five and 20. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. No, and I, you know, I had a lady that with a sed rate over 100 and a C-reactive protein of 80. Oh, and, and her doctor recently testified to her that, cause she got COVID-19, that if we hadn't lowered those numbers, she probably would have died. So. Um, well, that's impressive. Yeah, CBRX protein is a very important test. It's a little bit pricier compared to the CBC, but it's very powerful. And how high up the predictive value would you place that? Less than the NLR? Less than NLR, but it's right up there, you okay. know, and then, you know, fibrinogen in the standard of care is misinterpreted. Like if you cut yourself, you know, fibrinogen is a signaling molecule for fissures, cuts, you know, things like that. But really from a chronic perspective, if your tissue internally is a little bit damaged, then fibrinogen is still recruited. So what we say is, you know, fibrinogen of 150 to 285, you're probably your repair and recovery is probably um, meeting your or outstripping your wear and tear, but above 285, you are probably wearing out more rapidly than you're repairing. And so, like I have a lot of people that tell me they're a bad healer. You're not a bad healer. What it is, is you have a process going on underlying where the wear and tear and deterioration is just faster than your, your repair and recovery. So it's kind of a different way of looking at it. And fibrinogen as a signaling molecule for tissue repair is a, a really good marker. It's also a clotting factor marker. So it, it's very helpful in COVID-19. If your fibrinogen is off the charts, that's one of the markers would have, which could imply a cytokine storm. And I think, Dr. Mercola, it's important to state that a cytokine storm, these elevated inflammatory markers is not exclusive to COVID-19. Mm -hmm. You know, sepsis, overloaded, you know, an overload of, uh, you know, bacteremia, you know, bacteria in your blood, that, that's a cytokine storm. And I can guarantee you, if you measure someone with a heart attack, you know, you can do BNP, but if you measured cytokines, their cytokines are going to be off the chart. They're going to have a cytokine storm. Someone dying of cancer probably has a cytokine storm. So the cytokine storm measurement is not exclusive to COVID-19, and that's what, in this paper we wrote, that's what we try to explain, that the measuring what I call pre-cytokine storm is a critical component to measure your risk of any number of chronic diseases and dying from you know, very virulent pandemic viruses like uh, SARS, MERS, uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2, anything like that. So you know, the immune system only has so many mechanisms and it expresses that and it expresses that extraordinarily highly in these uh, acute diseases, but your chronic burden will dictate, you know, your outcomes. Okay, so before I go further, I think it might be wise to d differentiate uh, the type of testing that we're doing, or at least the categories that it falls into. So one could be for a screening, the other could be for monitoring the severity of the COVID-19 illness. So a fibrogen, fibrinogen would be a good example. My guess is it may be better as a screening tool rather than as a tool to monitor how poorly the person is doing and, and rather as an alternative to use the fibrinogen breakdown product, uh, D-dimer, which right. is a, as a pretty powerful assessment of how sick they are. But I don't think D-dimer is a good screening tool because if you don't have any clotting going on, it's not going to 
is going well, to be. Harvard is using both both D-dimer, fibrinogen, and sed rate to establish the clotting uh, clotting portfolio for individuals uh, that are in hospital. So they're using. But would you? How would you classify the fibrinogen assessment? Would you? Which category would you put it into? The screening test or the test for how serious the illness is? More for screening. Yeah, that's what I thought. Just we just wanted yeah. to make sure because we, you know, we're still in the screening. Because then there's other tests that are really powerful, like that D-dimer and probably ferritin. We'll talk about ferritin. Absolutely. Well, let's let's yeah. hit ferritin now because it's really intriguing. I've been following ferritin for decades, and uh, really added another at least a decade, maybe a decade and a half to my dad's life because he, uh, I, we both have um, beta thalassemia and one of the artifacts of that is a tendency towards hemochromatosis or elevation in iron levels, which is manifested by elevated uh, ferritin levels. His ferritin right. levels about a thousand. But uh, so I've studied it for a long time now, very familiar with it. And uh, it, I was found it intriguing that it was a, such a powerful tool uh, to understand how seriously ill someone was with this illness. So why don't you help us understand how the ferritin, which is an iron transport protein, becomes elevated in, in COVID-19 or imagine other serious illnesses. Yeah, and, and you, can, you can correct me or add to whatever I say. You know, I, I, Dr. Trump taught me about ferritin, you know, 20 years ago. And, um, you know, I've done a lot of research on it, but I have my specific niche and how I'm looking at it. So I give a little... I give a, little, give a little example in nature. Mm -hmm. So the richest fishing grounds in the world are George's Bank off Nova Scotia. And if you look at how the St. Lawrence River travels and dumps nutrients into a Saint, uh, uh, the upper Atlantic, George's Banks, there's the Iron Range of Minnesota and there's an Iron Range in Sorrel, Canada, just east of, of uh, Montreal. So that water going out into the Atlantic is iron rich. And the sunlight hits the iron and it catalyzes the growth of algae. And so algae is the beginning of the food chain. And so that water is very cloudy. It's very lively water. Well, in your body, the same thing can happen with excess iron. Is Iron is a very important nutrient that will actually help catalyze the growth of, of bacteria, pathogens, but also symbiotic things. But pathogens is what we, can, what we worry about. So there's anemia but there's anemia of inflammation or anemia of chronic disease. So it's uh, two different terms of the same thing. And what happens is when um, blood cells are under attack, hemoglobin's under attack by whatever, then the body responds by trying to hide that iron away from the antigen, the insult, the infection. So anemia of chronic disease or inflammation usually is coupled to some infectious burden where the body and your brain intelligently knows, hey, let's remove some of that iron from readily availability in the serum and put it into storage in the uh, ferritin, ferritin uh, protein. So that's why, and I think, you know, in, in um, SARS-CoV-2, there was an indication that so when, on, when, when it's trans, transferred to the ferritin, which is the iron binding protein, um, it's unavailable to the pathogens? That, that's what it appears to be based on, you know, I haven't deep, done a deep dive, but it's just trying to quit, create an equilibrium like, away from the available. So I think that's absolutely right, Joe. Okay. Um, so, but you know, in, in SARS-CoV-2, you know, the COVID-19 uh, virus is there was some early data and I think it's, it's still valid is that it, um, the virus was actually replacing the ability of the hemoglobin to oxygenate the iron center. So it's basically attacking, you know, it's attacking the hemoglobin. So I believe that the elevated ferritin is just another manifestation of this anemia of inflammation or anemia of chronic disease. And then inflammation, you know, a lot of functional docs say that's the cause of all chronic diseases. I agree, but inflammation is a treasure it's your immune system activated. We need to dig down deeper and find out what it is. But I believe that's, you know, that's just another activity of the body to kind of control runaway inflammation, which is what a cytokine storm is. Yeah, and just to tie up the pieces, if you have elevated ferritin for the reasons as you described, that iron may not be available to the pathogens, but it is clearly 
available to the cells of the body, or at least the cellular matrix. And as a result of that, iron is a very powerful oxidant stress, and it will radically increase oxidative uh, oxidative species in reactive oxygen species, reactive nitrogen species, uh, which activates the, I believe, the NRLP3 inflammasome and radically increases these inflammatory mediators in these cytokines. So it's yeah. a big deal. And when, and, and it's, I, I, I'm just not, I don't do clinical medicine now, and I certainly never treated any COVID patients in the hospital. So, but it would seem to me that the D dimer and the ferritin might be two of the most powerful ways to, to monitor their progress, either mm-hmm. going up or going down. And, and the NLR, I'll have to say, you know, that's a new one for me. And I just, and it's not, there's hard, that's not even, I, I've encountered that, that assay before, but it's not being mentioned at all in this illness. I, mean, I haven't seen it. Well, they're talking about the, the connection is. Lower. I get it, but, but, it, but, but it's not appreciated. That's what I'm seeking. Right. You know, but it's, in terms of ferritin, it's such a simple solution for most people. It's give blood. I have any, yeah. any male with a ferritin of 150 or above should consider giving blood periodically. And if you're at 500, give blood, um, you know, as frequently well, as... Well, they tell you you can't. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. No, but I, would, I would extend that down to 100. You know, I think anything over 100 is potentially problematic. Uh, yeah, no, I agree with you on those numbers. I'm just saying it's where we try to get people to start yeah. paying I, attention. I, interesting, since I've modified my diet and went more um, carnivorous, uh, which you would think red meat is full of iron and should raise your ferritin levels, but my ferritin has dropped down to, to 40 and it just hasn't budged. In, in a long time so you know we like to create these one-for-one associations they, they just don't work it's really you know i have a little uh ex- example you know it's like when you have a orchestra and you're listening to them warming up it sounds very discordant yeah. and then the conductor comes together and brings them up you know raises the baton and brings them all together that's what health is it's not about you know the the symbol or the cowbell, you know, it, it, those are individual things. It's how they all work together. So, you know, just because you're bringing an iron, you know, your body isn't stupid. Your brain isn't stupid. It knows how to excrete it. It knows how to sequester it. It knows how to use it. It's only when we keep doing that in constant excess that we start losing the battle. And, and people in balance can get away with a lot. People out of balance, let me tell you, if you're, if you're insulin resistant, your insulin's 20, you're going to see huge swings in your glucose, no matter what you what you eat. If your insulin's two, you're not going to see swings. Same yeah. with your thyroid. Same with your gut. Same with your brain. Yeah. All these things. It's you know, if we can get you in balance, then you don't have to go on some kind of a cardboard diet or or restriction. You're healthy again, and your detox pathways are working. And there's a, you know, you can enjoy you can enjoy the uh, pleasures of life. You can have your red meat. You know. Um, that's, so the, that's what we try to achieve in folks. Yeah, that's a key point, uh, which we haven't discussed yet, is the insulin resistance, which is pervasive. And about 90%, 9 out of 10 people in the United States are insulin resistant. And this is from NHANES, the latest NHANES data, which is four years old. So, um, it's, so you're measuring fasting insulin to determine it, because that probably isn't the best assay. It's the simplest one, certainly. But you know, a uh, sort of a oral insulin tolerance test where you're sequ- sequentially measuring insulin levels after a glucose challenge would probably be the best way. And I think Dr. Kraft, Joseph Kraft, who's passed away a bit now, wrote a whole book on that and how to assess it. Yeah, we just we try to create a funnel and do the least expensive test oh, yeah. for, first. So, like you know, the fasting insulin. I mean, the disease is insulin resistance, so it's bringing you much higher quality, forward-looking data compared to your fasting glucose or your A1C. You know, it's two people can have a A1C of eight and have very different glucose trends and the differences they're fasting insulin or the fasting, you know, the insulin tolerance test. No question about it. I don't. I don't argue that at all. But when I'm running population work, which I do incorporate, you know, forget the glucose, forget the A1C. Yeah, we'll measure them as a surrogate to show the correlation, but all the protocols are de- designed around the fasting insulin number. Yeah, and it's 
the fasting glucose is a very useful tool because it's one of the few tests, blood tests, as you can easily do at home, thanks to type right. 2 diabetes and the, uh, the, the enormous availability of that testing. And you, and you can do your tests for like under 25 cents. Right. And basically almost give the, the monitors away or the, the testing devices away for free because they make their money on selling the strips, but it's still pretty cheap. Um, so what are some of the other tests that you like as part of the, the uh, assessment strategy for the risk, the risk that they're at? So I like uric acid, but I, I've tried to look in the research to see if uric acid is used in COVID-19. But see, uric acid is sort of a multifactorial inflammatory marker. But all I know is that if you and I went to top of Pikes Peak right now at 14,000 feet, our uric acid would go sky high. So it has some hypoxic protective power. So I believe that, you know, it's a measure of inflammation, which is tied to the cytokine storm, but it's also tied to hypoxia. So I think it could be a very good partner to the ferritin test. There's just no one really publishing on COVID-19 and um, uric acid. And we're not really treating anybody. I, I, I work with several clinicians from California to um, Pennsylvania, and some of them are treating COVID-19, but a lot of them, they're in a sort of like crisis mode, so they're not doing great triaging and, and, and measurement. But um, I think uric acid would be very important. Almost cysteine, it's a very interesting molecule I Did haven't seen any real studies with about. the person who discovered it. Yeah, um, um, Macaulay, you know, and what he showed was that, and, and you know, LabCorp keeps changing their reference uh, normals, and now they're as high as 17. But the Framingham study shows that, you know, with a baseline of around nine, every five points higher in homocysteine leads to a 40% increase in, in dementia because it's a vascular toxin. So, you know, what McCulley showed in 1965 is that children who were dying of atherosclerosis, their vessels were as bad as 90-year-olds with cardiovascular disease, um, had um, a trait that caused homocysteine to go off the charts. You know, the NTHFR or the cystathione synthase uh, deficiency that allows homocysteine. And I have two people right now that I'm working with that one has a homocysteine of 86 and one has a homocysteine of 88. Wow. And these are just not numbers. I mean, I- Were they symptomatic? I, they, so they, they, have, they have genetic traits. So they're, you know, the only thing we can do at this point is improve lifestyle, get them on the appropriate B vitamins that usurp those pathways and, and start lowering it. We've been successful at that so far. That's great. Yeah, excellent. So any other tests that you'd like to, have done regularly that are the highlights of them. You know, the, the, the vitamin D, um, you know, neutrophil percent. So the neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio overlaps with a lot of these things, but so um, just just clotting. So what, what are the good numbers on the percent? I mean, what, give us the uh, way that you analyze Anything that. above 55% neutrophils, you have some level of, of chronic infection. It might be the gums, you know. Um, is this, this is typically indicative of a bacterial infection? Most likely. I mean, one of the things we screen for in populations would be uh, chlamydophilia pneumoniae. We also look at Lyme, mycoplasma. You'd be surprised how many, I get calls from the, where I live in Tennessee now from the Tennessee Public Health Department because I'm one of the few people that tests for Rocky Mountain spotted fever. And it, it's not uncommon. And the other one related to the mad cat lady is the Toxoplasma gondii, but it's very pervasive. That comes in, you know, dirty water, comes in raw meat. And the number one manifestation of Toxoplasma gondii is schizophrenia. And the reason why you protect women who are pregnant is it, it inhibits fetal brain development. Well, that's a compromised situation but older people will be susceptible to Toxoplasma gondii. And I, I have dementia patients with Toxoplasma gondii. And it, none of these are very expensive tests, really. We just do the IgG as a screening. So it's a so-called historic, but it's not really historic. It's, it's stealth. It's a reticular or elementary body form of the organism, just like, um, you know, uh, herpes zoster, measles, you know, it, it comes back. Uh, chicken pox, rather, I'm sorry. 
it, it, it's a dormant and it can reactivate when your immune system's compromised. I can guarantee you that's not the only organism that can be go into a stealth phase and reactivate when you're not doing well. Okay. So, but just the other marker that I use and trying to keep it simple is, um, is, is sedimentation rate. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you have sick electrical system in your body, your sed rate's very high because the red blood cells, sed rate's measuring how fast your red blood cells settle in a test tube in one hour. And, you know, gravity's pulling on everything, right? And so they'll settle. But the red blood cells should have a nice repulsive charge on the outside of its membrane. And so all the red blood cells sort of buoy themselves up. So sed rate is a surrogate for how good your electrical system is working which I then use as a surrogate for your gut and how well it's doing at um, digesting and making bioavailable minerals because really just the sodium potassium pump. Then, then there are repair enzymes, LDH and, and uh, uh, how do I pronounce it, tropinin and uh, things of that nature that are really enzymes looking at tissue destruction. Uh, uh, creatine kinase, uh, once again, a very, um, a very inexpensive test that's measuring for tissue destruction. And, you know, when you're in a cytokine storm, it's because that virus is destroying, it's destroying your tissue. So these are all on the Harvard um, risk stratification panel as well. So they're all, they're all in there. Well, in addition to just uh, impairing that tissue, it's also causing clotting, which is further contributing to the hypoxia because the blood can't get through, and especially in the right. microvasculature, which is why these, the D-dimer tests and the fibrinogen regenerative assays are so useful because they're a good uh, assay for that. Uh, and the, the set rate is an inexpensive test. I remember when I was seeing patients that we would actually do them in our office. So you'd buy a kit of 100 tubes and you just draw a lavender top tube and then fill it up. And you know, you're right. If they, if, they're, if they have a high zeta potential, that repulsive electrical force in the red blood cells, it, it, it's typically single digits, if not zero. It doesn't move right. an hour, which is exactly where you want it. The lower, the better. So zero is optimal. But the higher it is, the worse you are. And, you know, triple. Yeah, well, what, I, what I tell people is that, look, everything in your body is electrical. Your brain, I'm moving my hands, that's electrical. Your heart's beating, that's all electrical. Mm -hmm. So the sed rate is really a surrogate like the eye is for your your brain the red blood cells are a surrogate for all the cells in your body because it's all a, a phospholipid bilayer and and the mobility of of ions through the channels in that membrane is, is going to be similar in almost all cellular uh you know uh, structures so if your sed rate is high the battery of your red blood cell is discharged and guess what? It's probably pervasive and systemic. And that explains a lot of reasons, you know, to some degree why people feel logy, feel low in energy um, and having these problems. It's like the sed rate, it's an absorption issue. You, know, you, you are not what you eat, you, what you absorb. And most of the time we can fix sed rate by healing the gut and, and reestablishing balance down there. People think you know, like with, um, with diabetes, it's pretty clear, you know, you're either insulin sensitive, you're pre-diabetic, you're diabetic, or you're insulin dependent diabetic. It's sort of a continuum, but in gut people say, okay, I had reflux. Now I don't have reflux. So my gut's good. No, it's on a continuum too. And if you've solved the reflux issue, it doesn't mean you've properly repopulated a, a very diverse colony of bacteria down there. So you're probably only half the way there. So if you really want to be healthy, you have to look at things as being on a continuum and that the emergence of symptoms is usually far down the line. And the, you know, the elimination of symptoms doesn't mean you've gone all the way back up to where you want to be to be healthy. And that's something I discuss with people. And, and you know, Dr. McCullough, it makes chronic disease solutions really challenging because people want the quick fix. And I have a very simple explanation to set expectations up. If it took you 10 years to get into something and we can discuss timelines, it's going to take you at least 10 months to get out of it. 
And that's with diligence, consistency, and and the proper treatment. Path. That's pretty optimistic. <laughs> I, it is, you know. It could I, be a I, lot longer I, than that. I, you know, I, I like to set expectations that people yeah. think they can reach. But at least but, it's not the next week or month or three. Yeah. No, never, never. We we find that when we have really compliant people, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, oh, brain fog, we get this major inflection at five months. And why is that? Because everything in nature is log linear. We, we, we are wired to understand that implicitly, but society has taught us instantaneous gratification. So we think if we do one thing, we'll get one result. But really everything is an asymptote. Going into disease is an asymptote. So you're incubating, 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 and then suddenly things go wrong. Things go wrong. Well, getting out of that state is the reverse of that. It takes you a long time to move the needle and start feeling better. And then all of a sudden you reach that inflection point and you feel better. So everything in nature, including health, including trying to run a hundred meter dash, it's a log linear relationship to get to where you want to be. Or a four minute mile. But I, li I like the hundred meter dash because that, you know, that is a, an anaerobic test. And I think a far better measure of your health than an an aerobic test, although running a four minute mile is pretty anaerobic. <laughs> yeah, well, it's torture. I'm just trying to make the point that we can all run a 40 second or even walk a 40 second 100 meter. Yeah. But as we get closer to a very low number like 12 seconds, yeah, the yeah. effort you have to put in is tremendously more. And the same with health. You know, if you're really sick and way down this path, you got to put in a lot of effort to make seemingly small gains until all of a sudden you get that inflection. And when people understand that and they buy into that concept, then they can stay the course and we can actually make them better. But I have a lot of people that they're hit and runs. They wanted this quick fix. They try this, they don't stick with it. Uh, and they move on to the next, you know, their front runners, the next good thing. And, and really we've got to train people on understanding, you know, the underlying mechanisms of disease so that they can, you know, create a path that'll actually get them to success. It's, it's not an overnight thing. That, that's all the, that's the only point I'm trying to so make. I, I don't recall seeing uh, a measurement of the omega-3 sufficiency. Uh, sometimes you can use an omega-3 index to do that. There's, there's other ways that you can assess it also, but I, I'm, I'm certain and I'm confident that you integrate that into your treatment protocol, but are you measuring for that regularly? We are not measuring for that. And it's just a question of, you know, being a, a relatively small group, getting LabCorp and Quest to get me good quotes on this. But, you know, we sometimes we can assume just like with vitamin D, but we prefer to test. But, you know, Dr. Trump used an old fashioned remedy and you had a, you know, on Monday you had a great article on omegas. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not going to dispute you on, you know, toxicity, but if you get a really good source, we're big proponents, and I have an eight-minute video on this, on cod liver oil. And I have many people disparage cod liver oil, but, you know, there's very few things that have a thousand-year medicinal history, going back to the Vikings, who rubbed cod liver oil on their hands and took it internally to alleviate sore joints. And one of the most profound things was Thomas Percival, 1848, in London hospitals with um, consumption you know, um, tuberculosis. tuberculosis epidemic, they're spitting blood, okay? When they gave high dose cod liver oil, this is 100 years before antibiotics, when they gave high dose cod liver oil, 15 to 50 grams a day, so you can translate that pills, 15 to 50, that it reduced mortality um, by 100%, that, you know, 6% were surviving, then after cod liver oil, but 12% were surviving but all kinds of other attributes. And I believe what cod liver oil brings to the table is obviously the omegas, but it also brings vitamin D in its natural form. So you get D2, D3, D4, D5. And once again, they work together. It's never one thing. And then, you know, you have the retinoic acid, you have the vitamin A in its natural form. And I believe that vitamin A is one of the most profound natural antibiotics and you know alfred summer at um johns hopkins has got grants to go around the world and treat children who are going blind with three cents worth of vitamin a or you know, retinoic acid and it basically cures that pathology so vitamin a has a profound effect on the retina 
but more importantly, systemic health. And there's not a lot of people talking about uh, mm. vitamin A. The concern is toxicity. So like cod liver oil has vitamin A in it. If you go up to the high doses that was being used for tuberculosis, you may experience vitamin A toxicity. But you know, we, we look at brands and see the vitamin A concentration. And so if we're gonna go at a very high dose of cod liver oil, we're gonna pick the, the, um, the brand that has the lowest vitamin A reported on there. Well, let me give you my thoughts on cod liver oil because vitamin A is clearly in cod liver oil initially pre-processing, but it, most of it is removed. And it actually has relatively very low levels of, of vitamin A, and, and, uh, uh, at least for in the oil naturally. So what the, the brands that do have high levels, it's, it's put in there after the fact. And you have to also be concerned about the processing. I mean, if there's no question that the vitamin A and the cod liver oil, as it was in the days of the Vikings, or the whole food, why wouldn't it work? Of course, it's fantastic. As long as it wasn't rancid, it's going to be very beneficial. But the problem nowadays is almost all processed. And you not only have to remove, you have to remove the heavy metals that are there because, you know, in the Viking days, they didn't have to worry about mercury. We got to worry about mercury and other other toxins. All true. Yep. So in that processing, you really run into serious problems, which is why I have some, some concerns about it, and even more so for the fermented cod liver oil. It's a whole other issue that I strongly discourage people from taking. Right. That's why I like more consistent, low-level things like the, like uh, krill, which is a very low in the food chain, so it's not contaminated, and it's more of a whole food type than anything. That's personally what I do. I take krill phospholipids every day, but two or three grams, and Yep. Omega three index is like eleven, and it's like which is spectacular. So, uh, yeah, I I concur, and all we're doing in the in these cases, yeah, is we're looking at a risk benefit analysis. Yeah, so like if, but if I mean, someone, you could, if you had, I mean, you just have to do due diligence if you're doing selecting caliber because there are I'm sure there are some stellar companies out there that, and it's a phenomenal product, but I'm also equally certain that the majority are not. So you have to be hyper diligent and just don't, just because it says cod liver oil is going to be beneficial, you know. I agree. I agree. Yeah. We, we... So anyway, uh, so we've reviewed a number of different tests uh, and the, the, the next practical question becomes, uh, how do I get this test? So I'm, I suspect you offer this as, a, as a, an assay or a, a, a process that they can, people here can, avail themselves to and get this tested. So why don't you discuss that if it's available? And then secondly, if they wanted to take advantage of their own healthcare system and insurance that they could do the test through their own doctor and then how they would interpret those results of those, those tests, tests that they're taking. Right. So we're, we're kind of an open book and I'll explain how that, that it's true. Um, So our website is health revival partners.com. So we're health revival. What was the last word? Partners, partners. So we're your partner in, in reviving your health. So it's health. Well, couldn't you get a longer website name? We can try. I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm just trying to make it mean. Health something. Health partners for COVID nineteen. <laughs> yeah, well, we just keep going on and on. Come, come to us, and we'll help you solve your problem. So, under our services tab, we have a COVID nineteen service, and there we have five different levels of panels, from a very, you know, just a population screening to a very, very deep dive, basically every marker we talked about today and then more looking at, you know, the lipids, the chemistry, uh, liver function, you know, metabolic, all all that stuff included. And, but if someone's interested, you know, we don't take insurance, um, but I can order these labs, my team can order these labs anywhere in the country. But if you go to that website and you click on one of those, I show you exactly what, in that panel. So uh, all the power to you if you have an insurance company that will run these tests. Oftentimes, you know, in a prevention or risk stratification mode, it's very difficult to get uh, clinicians to to write the orders for these odd tests. You know, Dr. Trump was successful because there were some interesting codes on eye pathologies that allowed him to expand mm-hmm. the testing he did. So he consistently did testing much broader than any other standard of care clinician. But, you know, what we usually do is we couple the lab test with a 
highly functional intake survey. So what we've done, and we've, we're publishing a paper on this, is we've created a risk score for every single question and answer that is typically on a paper functional intake questionnaire. Made it digitized, so it's online, you take it, we give you a letter grade, which is sort of a reflection of your total risk portfolio, and then subsections of grades, but then we give you a very detailed color-coded report, which really turns into your treatment plan, if you will. We want to ameliorate these different things, and we have health coaches to help you organize them, because some things you want to do in series, other things you want to do in parallel. Um, but anybody who does a blood test gets that, and then our team is trained on how to help you understand your labs from a very detailed chronic perspective, but also look back at the risk factors and show you what risk factors could potentially have led to an elevation in that lab. So you see a very clear one-for-one -one correlation. And the paper we're publishing shows, so we call one our chronic disease assessment. We give you a letter grade, but there's a number underneath it. And then we give you what we call our chronic disease temperature, which is amalgamation of 20 of these important biomarkers into a single score. So we have a plot of our chronic disease temperature versus our chronic disease assessment. And it's a fairly linear thing showing you that your risks are tied to your physiological health. And then we've shown in populations that we work with that when we lower their risk rate, just the lifestyle things, cleaning up the teeth, improving the gut, you know, things of that nature, cleaning the diet up, detoxification, that their risk rate, as the risk rate goes down, their physiological score goes down, which is a good thing because we want your score as low as possible. We're, we're playing golf here in terms of uh, low score wins. Okay, so that's, that's the essence of what we do. You know, we have functional doctors, regular doctors, health coaches. So good. Uh, so you have a resource there that people can avail themselves if they, uh, are unable to find someone locally to them. And I, I imagine uh, that uh, you're using telecommunications like Zoom or some way to oh, yeah. go over that. So, which is, I think that there are lots of negatives of this pandemic, but there are some positives. And, mm -hmm. you know, the ability to do things remotely has radically increased. And I think to advantage, I, many of us were doing that beforehand, but now it's become more widely adopted and accepted. So. Well, I'm hoping, I'm hoping one of the most positive things that comes out of this is that doctors look beyond the lipid panel and, and the sure. A1C as a way to characterize patients. Though, you know, Dr. Trump, I'd get him on the phone with other doctors, and the first thing he'd say is, you know, without even introducing himself, are you proud of your workout? And what he meant by that is, are you taking the time to really understand the problems of that patient? And if we're just measuring lipids and A1C and, and a little uh, metabolic and chemistry, we, we not really, we're not really getting, we're looking through a, you know, um, a telescope. We're not really using a wide angle lens on people. So, you know, that, that's, that's what we're doing. And we're trying to make our, our program affordable, whereas a lot of people fear functional medicine because their initial bogey on testing is very high. So we have a program for $10 a month. You get our risk assessment and then every week we do live um, presentations to help educate you on your health and take do Q&A to help uh, provide solutions. So you may not need a consult or fancy labs. Nice, but, nice. And how do people avail themselves to that resource? That's on our, that's on our program. We call that, uh, that's under our services. We call that chronic disease support. Okay. So it's just a subscription or a one-time payment. You're signed up for a year. We get the assessment. Then since our assessment is digitized, we take all our members in a spreadsheet on a HIPAA compliant uh, cloud and just look at the highlights. Who's, you know, what is our population expressing? And, and you, know, you know, chronic pain, sleeplessness, anxiety, depression, sure. uh, stomach problems. And we just go down in the order of what people are saying is a major complaint and just start going over these these uh, issues. And we also have a learning management system that we enroll people in. It's sort of a self, a self uh, teaching process. You know, it, it sends you recipes and content and videos and, and, and things on a regular basis to keep engagement's the toughest thing. To yeah. I, you have to have a profoundly uh, 
effective learning intervention and, and a commitment to that and the discipline to do it. So that's why, you know, creating a small financial bogey to get into the program, yeah. you know, it's not free. So you, you, you've made a little bit of a commitment. So you're more likely to listen on a weekly basis. Sounds great. All right. Well, I uh, really appreciate your time for putting this all together and uh, of, uh, offering this service for people if they're interested, because it sounds like it could be very useful to many people. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's a path and a lot of people need handholding to make sure they're going down the right path. And then we'll measure how we're doing objectively. You can measure us and we'll measure you. It's a, it's a quick pro quo. All right. Sounds but, great. 